0: A new episode of the genre equality podcast on the genre equality channel i'm
1: hitzer i'm isa uh
0: this week well this month uh, <laughs> it's going to be a big one for you guys because we'll be covering um season four part two of attack on titan uh which is not the final part as we've learned um too much consternation and controversy which we'll get into <sighs> later on yes uh, but there are other things we're going to talk about besides aot of a big enemy out there particularly myself uh we'll be singing the praises of severance Mm -hmm. uh one of the best new shows coming out of apple tv plus just last month uh well just just ended a few weeks ago actually um as well as a new indie film called memoria starring tilda swinton out at the projector right now season two of russian doll is finally back after a four-year hiatus um bathhouse time traveling anime tamirominova will be (laughs) uh on the bill as well and those are just our main topics um plus we'll be covering big movies that have just recently been released such as fantastic beasts 3 i think um yeah one two three yep fantastic Beasts Three. it's called the secrets of dumbledore that's out as well son of the hedgehog 2 is out as well morbius is out as well um these things have been out for a while and we're finally you know getting around to reviewing them um which says a lot about how excited we are to talk about them which is not at all though. um <laughs> And those are just some of the things. Plus, you know, um in my pull list, list I'll be talking about a very old book. Oh well, it's twenty years old, so oldish uh yeah uh, book called Never Let Me Go, which um I've only read recently, um, although I have seen the film. Um, plus a couple of new shows that are out called The Man Who Fell to Earth and Shining Girls will be covered by me as well. Alongside Isa F, uh, will be talking about season two of Ultra which is probably the biggest show with the biggest hiatus, <laughs> like what four years ish, right? Yeah. Even longer, the Russian doll. Yeah. Um, man, crazy. But we won't be talking too much about that, and I will <laughs> tell you why. Um, let's begin with the biggest uh enemy that we have to talk about right now. Yeah. Um, easily the biggest show on our rundown this this month. Yeah. That's uh, Attack on Titan season four part two continues the story, of um generational trauma in the uh, it, um, within the walls of parodies and without um, obviously um, this was built as the final season um, and we have kind of been you know anticipating the finale here yeah um, I, I i myself knew that it wasn't not going to end with part two and had to you know keep that quiet for for the most part the only thing i could tell people is that they will be dissatisfied with the finale because it's not a finale um but, you know, uh, before we get into what is or isn't the finale or whether you are satisfied with the ending or whether you're happy that it's continuing for eight more episodes next year, yeah. um, let's get into season four, part two, without the extra stuff. La. Let, let's just take it all in in, uh, in a vacuum. Um, what do you think of that, that season four, part two? Does it live up to the greatness that was season four, part one?
1: Oh, man. Um, I guess so. I guess so. It's it's kind of this weird thing where I, I feel like the way that they've divided the parts, and I, I think this is going to hold true for part three as well, isn't mm. as neat as it could possibly be, right? Like, mm. if we were to kind of like, eventually when we're ho- done with however many parts season four has, right? Um,
0: uh, Only three parts. There's only eight chapters left. Okay. Nine chapters left. So it can't be more than eight or nine
1: episodes. Yeah. Well, mm, hopefully, hopefully. We'll see. They might decide to drag things out. Uh which I There's hope.
0: There's only one arc left. There's only one arc left. It's very short arc. It has to finish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah so with part three, I think I think when we take a look back at it in, in, in its entirety, it might be a little different, right? Um, just having all three parts in kind of a, um, a, a kind of a macro view of that and how they decided to kind of like finish off the story in this final season. Um, mm. but with part, the way they've divided it, Karina, with Karina, part one and part two, it did feel a lot like part one was kind of fresh, right? Um, like going on from season three, which was a very, very strong season um, and and just kind of like continuing with that, um, the whole different kind of point of view than what we got in seasons one and two um, and mm. continuing with that, I think that captured a lot of people's kind of imagination also with the kind of like continuance of the the time uh, jump that we got as well mm. right and then like going into part 2 like part 1 felt fresh but it also felt like a setup part 2 felt like a continuation but we didn't get the satisfaction of a proper uh, conclusion right so mm. it's hard to gauge part 1 against part 2 in my opinion Uh, what what did you feel about part 2 Uh, via, via part 1
0: I think part 2 is a very very strong season um it is uh, a bit uh, unfortunate that they weren't very upfront with the fact that this was part two or three, yeah. um, rather leading people to believe that part two will be the finale, which is where the backlash comes from. I think if they were just upfront with it and said this was part two or three, yeah, um, this this season might have been um, a lot more well-received because I think it was very strong. Um, it perhaps doesn't match the quality of part one. Mm. Uh, but uh, once you see part three, you will... <laughs> Um, you will come to consider part two to be greater. Mm, uh, yeah, th- than you think of it now. Um, especially that particular finale, which was not a finale. Um, we were expecting a big fight between Aaron and you know Armin's little United Nations uh group and and everything, right? But yep. what instead we got was a low key contemplative, uh, flashback, um, to a key moment uh on the the recon cruise. Um, first scouting mission beyond the walls into the continent nation of Mali. Yeah. Um, which seems like a bizarre choice for a finale. <laughs> uh, but what it does is it um gives you character beats and character moments that are so pivotal and critical to what is happening next. Yeah. That you will look back onto this finale very fondly. Mm. Um, but of course yeah. like I'm speaking with the with the knowledge of what happens next. La. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Almost yeah. prescient vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that, yeah. Um, at this point in time, with where we've ended, right? Do you feel like Attack on Titan is poised to be one of, um, the best animated decade?
0: Um, it already is for me. It's not poised or anything. it's yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: So whether yeah. or not like we see, uh, part three, right, or what? I mean, like it's gonna take some major kind of mishaps either with the studio or with the quality for for that to like. Derail, right? Uh, where Attack on mm-hmm. Titan has established itself in, yeah, yeah, I agree with you for sure.
0: Uh, not necessarily. Um, the issue with Attack on Titan season, uh, four part three, yeah, is not the fact that the studio or whatever is gonna drop the ball. It's the fact that the final arc in the manga itself <laughs> is considered to have dropped the ball. So the question is, do the animators and the anime showrunners stay true and faithful? to um, uh, the creator's very divisive, I would say bold and brave, uh, yet cynical ending? Or uh, do they uh, tweak Hajime Isayama's uh, manga to give fans a more, say, happier ending? Um, That's that's about Uh, as much as I can say without spoiling it. I personally prefer the manga ending, although it is overwhelmingly... I am in the overwhelming minority out there <laughs> la, of the people who read the manga and love the ending. It seems the majority think it's a terrible ending. I think the majority are just I don't know kind of branded shonen fans who just want fan service. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not here to judge you. I mean, art is subjective. If you don't like if you don't like the ending, you don't like the ending, la. I mean, whatever, la, You know, I will live with that. But I personally love the ending, and I hope the anime sticks true to it and that and. But there will be controversy regardless. Yeah. Whether whether it sticks to the ending, which in in that case the controversy will be, you know, for most of Attack on Titan fans they've not read that not read the manga, right? Yeah. You would say. Yeah. So the uproar will be amplified and multiplied to the levels of Game of Thrones ending. You know. Uh, um, yeah. So that will be the controversy part one if they go on 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 that route. If they don't go that route, the people who do like the ending or the people who want them to stick to the manga. Then we'll complain, oh, you gave a happy ending, you sold out, you know, you <laughs> you caved in, etc. etc. It is it is a loss, loss for Attack on Titan, I feel, regardless of where they go. Lah. Interesting. But you know, that, that, that is a speculation for part three, you know. But uh, yeah. what about you? You know, uh what do you think were the highs and lows of part two? What do you think of it? Uh
1: okay, so highs and lows of part two, I, I feel like again, um where we ended off. And I, I, think in general, I think we'll keep away from spoilers because I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's recent enough that not everybody has caught up with that. So if you're listening yep. to this, uh, we are not in spoiler territory. You are safe for the moment. Uh, a couple mm. of revelations like here and there, like it's not as quick. We, we don't get like these quick small revelations that we got in part one. Like these are more impactful. And again, like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of like character setup for that. Uh, what I'm thoroughly enjoying for part four, the two parts of this of season four thus far is the fact that it is such a rare thing for any sort of anime, uh, rather, to have its character development and growth become the center stage, so much so that no matter how terrifying or fantastical or strange the setting and the premise of the anime is, that sits in the background right yeah. uh, and while it continues to drive the plot and all that it is at this point in time like largely character driven right there are so mm, many yep. uh, uh, threads that you could possibly follow that we all want to see tied up uh, there are so many clashes and conflicts there's so much reason to go back to earlier seasons just to see if um you know each character has performed kind of like true to form um mm. as we've kind of discussed with some of the foreshadowing and all of that uh, so all of those things I feel have become more compelling than the actual mystery I guess behind you know the show itself right or, or what it started off with in season one uh, mm. And that to me feels incredibly rare and incredibly well done uh, and it is most evident I think in season four part two than in anywhere else in the franchise so far.
0: Yeah, season four part one had the benefit of giving you, all the twists yeah. uh, because of the time jump. Yes. Season 4, part... Uh, sorry, that, that was part 1, right? had all the t- benefits of the twists and everything. Yeah. It, it it drops you right into that, you know. Part 2 needs to give you the reasons for the, those twists. It needs exactly. to fill in on the context of it. Um, and that is just as important as giving you the twist because twist without context is meaningless, yeah. you know. It is half of M. Night Shyamalan's filmography, uh, <laughs> right? Um. So that's why I think season uh season four part two really succeeds because um you see the return of several characters such as mm, Annie mm-hmm. who we haven't seen since late season one or early season two I believe yeah early um, um we didn't see Levi at all with the exception of the flashback finale yes um we see the growth of Gabby as our um, funhouse mirror reflection of. Uh, year one, um, Aaron, um, and then you know the parallels between Gabby and Sasha, the the, the girl she killed, mm. and you know, and and Gabby ending up becoming Sasha to, uh, to a very important family that Sasha saved early on. Yeah. Um. They, they they do a lot of neat little small nuanced character moments like that. Yes. That I feel is missing in in the majority of uh seinen or shonen anime. Yes. Um. I think the reaction to the latest season of Demon Slayer very clearly illustrates that there is a big divide between what I consider good storytelling and what fans of the genre consider good storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is why Attack on Titan is getting the backlash. It is um, because it's going in a very subversive route. Um, It is brave in the choices that it (laughs) makes. there have been, you know, um, indications that some people consider the enemy to be nihilist or imperialist or pro-war. Um, a bit bizarre this controversy, yeah. considering you know, like a um, shinless list pro-genocide. I mean, it's <laughs> because it's showing genocide. I don't think so, and I think the points might be flying past your head if you, yeah, if that is the conclusion that you draw from this anime, which is so clearly about the horrors of war and about people deciding that, again and again, including our main character and protagonist, mm-hmm. Aaron Yeager, mm-hmm. that genocide is the answer to historical atrocities. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's it's that old Battlestar Galactica adage, you know, yeah. um, all of it has happened before and all of it will happen again. But, you know, the cause of general, generational trauma is that it keeps the, the cycles of violence churning. Um, this is what the show is all about. It's about how difficult it is to break out of the cycles of violence. Yeah. and if you look at our own human history, real history, you know, you see that we don't do that. Um, individual characters in a show, like individual individual people in real life, may make the decision to not go for vengeance yes. or to be the bigger person, etc., etc. You know, but in the end, you know, like individuals can break out of that, but society as a whole doesn't seem to be able to, and that's what um. Isayama is trying to say mm. uh, with Attack on Titan. It may not be a very rosy outlook. Um, you know, so many um, of the enemies the out there, you have all these very noble characters always doing the right thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and Attack on Titan has very human characters who so are always filled with human flaws and the human wish for vengeance and revenge. And it puts you um, so immersively into the shoes of every one of them, whether you whether you are rooting for Mali or whether you're rooting for Paradise or whether you think for Aaron or Mikasa or Liba or everyone, uh, or even Zeke, you know, um, yeah. everyone has a good reason for doing what they think, <laughs> uh, for doing what they're for doing what they're doing. Cloud. Everyone thinks that they're right, yeah. and to a certain extent, everyone is right, which is what makes this such uh, one of the most complex political allegories that has ever been put on screen, live action or animated. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah.
1: Agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you rate um season four, part two?
0: Uh it's an eight out of ten for me. Um not uh I will rate season one, season four, part one a nine out of ten. So mm. this this falls slightly below that. Yeah. But an eight out of ten is still a very, very strong, strong rating and a strong season, I feel. Um if only they had been up front that there was gonna be a part three, yeah. then then perhaps I might have rated it higher a bit you know okay. um i i yeah i don't like the for almost false ha- the false advertising of it <sighs> which is yeah um not the fault of the actual uh creative team but the fault of the marketing team so but, but what are you going to do like? it's, it's it's part of the narrative yeah. uh the, the meta narrative going into Attack on Titan as uh, a fan so you got to consider it as well uh, i feel
1: for sure for sure yeah yeah i'm i'm giving uh, part 2 a 7.5 uh, i believe i get part i well i wasn't did I? you were the one that reviewed part 1.
0: No, I didn't review part 1. I wasn't into the show at that point.
1: Right. Oh, no, no. Okay, so that was on my anime list which I don't... Uh, on my anime corner and I don't usually give uh, a score for that. But I would give part mm. 1 probably like an 8, 8.5, I think. um, okay. Just because I it has something to do with like the the pacing of part 1 felt more satisfying right mm. so again i i guess once we're done with part three and maybe we'll kind of revisit this topic as like uh, attack on titan in, in its entirety as we do mm-hmm. with many of our favorite kind of franchises um yeah yeah we'll we'll, we'll see if that changes uh when we take a, a fuller more macro view of the of attack on titan as a whole
0: yes yes absolutely you know um there was speculation that it was going to be a movie uh, to wrap this up, which, you know, would make sense uh, considering um, the studio mapper made so much from Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, oh, right? Yeah. That, you know, they were like, oh, why don't we cash in on this, you know? But I think the nine chapters remaining Yeah uh would have been too much for a two-hour film, unless it was a four-hour film, uh which would be you know a Snyder <laughs> cut. You know. Um so I think an, an eight, nine, ten episode final season would be just about the right length for 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 the final nine chapters. Yeah. Um especially considering season four part two was so faithful to the manga that every episode was exactly one chapter. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that might that might be doing it. Uh that might be what do they're going for in the in the next part. Um. I hope so. I yeah, hope yeah. so.
1: I do hope part three like doesn't rush it, right? Like anything less than, less than than nine would feel a little sure. pushing it. Because some, oh yeah, uh, for those of you that are wondering, the manga is done, right? So if you want to go ahead and go read on that, you can you can have a peek into what we are, what we are referring to vaguely. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we will. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, they take their time with it. Like it gets the pacing that it deserves for for this fi- final part.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, hundred percent agree. There's a lot of fight scenes, uh, drawn in the final chapters yep. of the manga. Um, I'm assuming the fight scenes being animated would be considerably longer, lah. You know, there could be entire, you know, four or five episode arcs focused on one fight. Yeah. Um, which is not new for anime or not new for that. I think even yeah. You know, um. The entirety of season two, uh, one and a half days takes place over one season. Yeah. You know? So uh I'm just telling you, part three will, will be like that. La. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how much I can say, but that's roughly what I can say. La. Uh, other than the fact that I enjoyed part two a lot, I know a lot of people were disappointed that it was not the end. They skimmed on the finale. Uh but I will tell you that rather would you rather have them rushed. Like or crammed in the final nine chapters in the last two or three episodes, or would you rather have the story told at a more appropriate pace? You know, yeah. um, patience has its virtues. Uh, let the animators uh, animate the final season. Uh, give them time to tell the story at its own pace, yeah. you know, rather than cramming in all the chapters within the twelve episode order they got for part two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what what would you rather have? Like a rushed ending or a proper ending? I mean, so uh, if if you upset that this wasn't the ending. Think of it that way. Like. Yeah. Uh,
1: again, I think a lot of it has to do with with things that you can't control that's outside of the anime, right? Like the way that they market it, et cetera, et cetera. Or, or just mm-hmm. not letting that information on. But I, I what I've, I struggle to understand is like, look, you're getting more Attack on Titan, right? Which is an yeah. anime you purportedly love. So why mm-hmm. are you complaining? Right? Like an additional yeah. season, sure, you, you have to wait, you know, however many months it is that we have to wait right? But we've we've lived as an entire generation through Game of Thrones, right? And, like, yeah. we are no stranger to that. And look at what we got at the end of the day for Game of Thrones. So that given how quality this first two parts were for this final season, has been, right? Just wait a couple more months, and, like, we'll get it in this entirety, and then you can decide whether or not, right, the ending is what it should have been, the pacing is what it should have been, whether or not you still believe that they should have ended at part two. Like, you know, just give it time. It's not going to be more than a year, so, like, chill out. Mm.
0: Uh I mean, Game of Thrones is a bit of um, an apples to oranges thing, like, considering the Game of Thrones showrunners couldn't have waited 20, 30, 40 years or however long it would have taken for George R. R. Martin to finish his last two books, you know. That is um, perfectly fair. Yes. Game Game of Thrones showrunners also had nothing to adapt for its final season or final two or three seasons. Exactly. Whereas Attack of Titan does, you know, so, I mean, yeah la, uh Game of Thrones not to get back into that narrative uh, yeah. but it was uh, like Beethoven and Weiss were a bit unfairly maligned for, for sure. trying to end the story that they didn't start yeah. um, and it was very unfair of them uh, to put that pressure on them especially from George Floyd Martin's point of view like, who should have given them something good <laughs> that Attack on Titan does have something like that, yes. that it's it's most critical decision going forward in the next year is whether to change the ending. Yeah. Um, there are ways to change it. I feel that could work, but I'd rather it not. Interesting. Um, I think Isayama's um view of humanity is brutal but earned. Yes. Um, cynical but truthful. Yes. Um, it will upset you because it reflects who we are, not who we should be. Yes. And I'm okay with
1: it. Yeah. And I'm okay with it. Yes. Yeah. I-, yeah. I want a cogent ending, right? Um, mm. With whatever, like, this world that he has presented and all the characters that populate it and how we have followed them, I want an ending that does justice to that and follows that. And I don't know if it's possible to have a happy ending that satisfies those requirements. Um, but we'll see. We'll see uh, what they choose to do from here on end. Fingers crossed um, they, they are faithful as faithful as they have been with part two.
0: Definitely, I definitely agree. Um, so yeah, um, it was an eight out of ten for me. It was a 7.5 from you, right? Yep, that's right. All right, very, very, very high rating. Uh, next up, I'm gonna delve into the first part of Quick Hits where I talk about the movies and TV shows that my co hosts have not been able to catch up on. Uh, first on, I want to talk about a show that means a great deal to me and is right up there with um a show that I spoke very highly about um earlier in January called Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, this engrossing new Apple TV show um, is a thriller called Severance. I feel rival Station Eleven in terms of quality and brilliance. And I, spoiler alert, I will be giving it the same rating. <laughs> um, in, in Severance, uh, it stars Adam Scott, uh, who plays Mark, um, a man who literally has no life outside of work. Well, half the time anyway. Um, let me explain. Uh, the show takes place in a world where corporate employees... Can volunteer for a severance procedure that completely separates their memories of their time at the office from the memories of everything else. Mm-hmm. So there are essentially two marks. The inny who they, they they call the people who are working inies and the people and the personal uh, selves cells outies. Yeah. You know, people who exist inside and people who exist outside. The any who exists in and around the sub-basement cubicle where Mark does some inscrutable kind of data entry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the Alti who has no clue what his body does down there for eight hours a day. Um, as far as the any Mark is concerned, he never gets to go anywhere, see anyone but his colleagues, know anything about his personal life, sleep, or get any kind of break. Yeah. He is always working all day and every day of the strange half-life his Alti has chosen for him. Um, this show is created by Dan Erickson in and directed all of his episodes by Ben Stiller. And the show literalizes the struggle for work-life balance in a way that feels equal parts, Charlie Kaufman-esque, sci-fi whimsy, um, also a bit of paranoid 70s thriller, um, and a lot of late-stage capitalism satire. Um, Severance gradually um, reveals why the Alt versions of Mark and his office mates would subject part of your identities to such a horrific fate. Yep. But any anyone who has devoted too many hours to a job while enduring platitudes about how the company is like family may soon find themselves relating to the trapped innies, not the outies. Um, though Mark is the main character in both worlds, um, Erickson and Ben Stiller smartly use his co-worker Heli as our point-of-view proxy for the work scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, we are first introduced to her. She is our first character that we meet. She wakes up lying on top of a conference room table with no memory of who she is or how she got there and spends much of the first episode convinced, um, pretty justifiably, that she might be part of something nefarious. Yeah. In one scene, she asks if she's just livestock uh, grown to be someone else's food. Later, she wonders if she's died, and this bright antiseptic, Decidedly retro office space is really hell, and Mark gently insists that it is not. Uh, but within a few episodes, it becomes clear that Hallie is onto something on a metaphorical level because mm-hmm. not just because the older co workers treat the company itself as a religion, you know, some study the company's manual, like it's a Bible, while others who have undergone severance, uh, aka, uh, oh, sorry, uh, others who have not undergone severance, the non severed workers, yeah. the normal workers, all refer to the company's founders as if he were some sort of messiah. It has a very religious cult vibe to the corporate philosophy behind uh, behind this company. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of its smart and intriguing script, Ben Stiller has really grown to be an excellent director. Mm. Here, he captures both the strangeness of the concept and its emotional implications. His camera makes the impressively weird production design seem even more unnerving, and he gets fascinating, nuanced performances for. An all-around stellar ensemble, his visual palette is extraordinarily cold and intimidating and eerily colourless to reflect the mood and tone of this dry and dreary world. Um, The real-world passages, uh, when we do go outside to the real world, are good also because we follow Mark, who is a glum, sad sack that eventually gets involved with people who claim to have found a way to undo the severance process. Um, eventually, though, what we see of Mark and others at home helps inform what's happening to their work selves, in ways that are at times shocking, and at others darkly funny. Mm-hmm. Um, Altie Mark, for instance, has little patience for his brother-in-law, who is a pretentious self-help offer. But when a copy of his brother-in-law's newest book makes its way down into the office, any Mark, who keep in mind has no memories of the outside, has no pop pop cultural understanding of any kind, finds this self-help book, which is very, very uh, lame. Uh, he finds it to be so profound, he begins memorizing passages out of it. Um, but it's in the any scenes where the show really shines. The any the scenes are so surprising and poignant that, unlike Helly, <laughs> you may be giddy at a chance to spend tons of time mm-hmm. in this funhouse mirror of inadequate workplace incentives. You know, like yeah. when, when one worker boasts of all the erasers and stickers he's earned, um, it's a bit bizarre, but also true to life because if you've ever been in any sort of corporate structure or corporate setting, you know mm-hmm. you, you you know that there are those Fridays where your boss buys you pizza and you know makes you think <laughs> that you know this is a family, this is this is enough for, for what you give to the company. Um, it's that the series continually finds both nightmarish new depths and uh, unexpectedly sweet highs within this bizarre concept that makes it shine so bright. You know for example, um, a worker Irving, uh, played by John Turturro, and a colleague in another department, played by the great Christopher Walken, um, develop romantic feelings for one, one another. But what can you do about it Yeah, when the versions who are in love never get to do anything but work and the versions outside don't know each other? The incredibly brief moments they're able to steal away just to talk or to brush hands are just aching with emotions. And this is like the COD plot. Yeah. Um, but Annie's in addition, are forbidden to communicate with their alties. They can't send each other messages. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, the companies allow for alties to communicate with the innis. So it's a one-way street. Yeah. Alties can communicate with innies, Inis cannot communicate outside. Yeah. When one particular inie stirs up trouble in search of better working conditions, their indignant altie records a video message. Records a video message, laying things out bluntly. Mm-hmm. I am a person. You are not. Um, it's perhaps not a coincidence that the innie scenes feel far livelier and more engaging than the Alti ones as the severance is rebutting this very argument by showing just how human the innies are while their Alties have coldly given up a part of themselves in service to their work. Mm-hmm. The whole thing built in very satisfying ways, up through a season finale that is so tense that I may have forgotten to breathe a few times oh, sure. and left me um, both, I mean, Angry, and I, I don't mean angry in a bad way, but I mean angry in a good way because of the various cliffhangers that they left us on. Mm-hmm. Um, cliffhangers are a good thing, guys. It's, it's a it's a sign of great writing <laughs> when it makes you when it makes you frustrated. So yeah, this is this is a ten out of ten for me. Um, easily the tight for best new show Ooh. of the of of the new year. Um, Station Eleven and this. Station Eleven. I can't even really consider it to be a two thousand twenty two show considering its first couple of episodes debuted in 2021 in December. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, Station Eleven is mostly in 2022, but technically it's the 2021 show. Yeah. So I guess I could say that Severance is the best new show of the year. <laughs> uh, right up there in quality, Station Eleven. Nice. 10 out of 10, highly recommended. If you have Apple TV+, please go check it out. It's nine episodes of Pure Perfection. Uh, next up I'll be covering a movie called Memoria which is out right now at uh, the projector mm-hmm. thanks to the Pictures. Um this is made by Thai filmmaker um I'm going to butcher his name but I'm going to try it one time. Okay. Uh, and then I'll and then I'll just call him the Thai filmmaker from now on. Um Apichatong Weera Wirasatakul. Um is known in the arthouse world as the king of slow cinema. His uh, films, like 2010's Uncle Boon um, are typically very slow and static, feeling like a series of Impressionist paintings that may not necessarily form a story, but coalesces to evoke some particularly deep, indescribable emotions within you. His works are lyrical and meditative and sinuous, um, often exploring the concept of dreams and memory and nature. Mm-hmm. And we are extraordinarily long. Um, His shortest film is two and a half hours. His longest film is three and a half hours. Ooh. So immediately, based on what I told you of the Thai filmmaker and his works, there is admittedly a high bar to entry here. Yeah, I am going to say this so straight up. His films are not for everyone. Uh, what I've just described to you, meditative and sinuous and lyrical and all those nice words that I've just used, for many of you, you may equate that to boring and I do not blame you mm. because, sure, yeah, I mean, some of you may find it boring. But for fans like me who have come to appreciate his kind of lingering, beautiful, static compositions and the thoughts and feelings that he can evoke, his latest film, Memoria, is pretty much his masterpiece, his magnum opus. Memorial is the Thai director's first work outside of Thailand. Mm-hmm. It follows Jessica, who's played by Tilda Swinton, who is an expat English woman living in Medellin, Colombia, where she operates a flower selling business. She is visiting her uh, sister Karen, who is in Bogota Hospital, suffering from a mysterious respiratory ailment. One early morning, Jessica is awoken by a mysterious fud. She just hears, she just sees a fud out of nowhere. You know it sounds. Like nothing. It sounds random. The sound is dull Mm -hmm. and sharp, and it doesn't have a clear sense of origin. And Jessica soon discovers that she keeps hearing this clonk randomly at different sporadic points in her life, and no one else can hear hear it. And Jessica searches for the meaning behind this foreboding sound. Um, And in her search for meaning, Momora becomes a glacial, mesmerizing... 136-minute sort of sci-fi fantasy that's filled with supernatural terror and a deep psychological exploration connected to the human consciousness. Memoria operates on a very eerie level. The sharp fuds arrive without notice, occasionally one at a time. Other times, it's in a succession. Uh Uh, Jessica eventually goes to a young, flirtatious recording engineer named Hernan to replicate the sound. Um and she goes to this recording studio and she tries to tell him what it sounds like. So he's re- gonna replicate it for and it's deep and low and metallic as though it's sprung from the center of the earth, mm-hmm. like like a molten rock landing on the ground. And the film is a feast of a sort of a sonic landscape, not just because of the fact. the it focused on all sides of all sorts of sounds, you know, the rattle of the wind between believes even seems to have his own language. And Momora is populated by many instances of other distinctive noises, whether it's the crack of thunder or the screech of howler monkeys. In his typically unhurried style, the Thai director asks us to contemplate all these aural sensations and consider how they may form the unexamined background of our lives. Um, a subplot in the narrative includes construction workers uncovering an ancient skeleton of a girl with a hole drilled into her skull to release demons um, likewise jessica is diagnosed with exploding hit syndrome weirdly mm. enough um and the Thai director isn't too concerned with the mechanics of either phenomena he takes greater interest in demonstrating how colombia has moved away from its supernatural indigenous roots to become a more modern country yeah um and the ways a white woman transversing that foreign ground can be consumed by echoes uh, of a lost culture, the ghosts of a lost culture, if, if I could say so. Um, so it has very little dialogue and Tilda Swinton has to convey her growing tension and apprehension through subtle physical acting. Mm. Um, as you may have already guessed, Tilda Swinton is a great actress, so she this off brilliantly. Um, the shots are also long and measured and it feels like there are only a few dozen cuts in the movie. That pace allows viewers to search the screen for meaning, just as Jessica is searching for the origin of the noise. And I know from experience that 99% of you will give this a 0 out of 10 because it is so slow. <laughs> um, nothing is happening, you would say. Uh, but for the niche who've learned to appreciate weiraceticals, um, cryptic, zen-like, impressionistic works, mm-hmm. I think this one will be a treat. This is, this is for you people who perhaps would like to go to a museum and you know spend an hour or two staring at a painting. Um, it's for some people, it's for not but for me, it's an 8.5 out of 10 uh, that's for me, la. me the art house film buff who has kind of cultivated this palette over years uh, me, the casual view from 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whatever that may be we have rated this a 0 and I understand if you hate this so I'm not going to blame you if you do Um, and that's it for Quick Hits Part 1 uh, next up we'll be delving into Russian Doll Season 2 which is Finally back That's, after oh. um, a three-and-a-half-year hiatus, um, if you slept on the first season of Netflix's Russian Doll, you missed a wonderfully dark and quirky and poignant comedy about a woman named Nadia who discovers that she's in a time loop where she keeps dying but then returning to the night of her birthday party. Um, we gave the Natasha Lyonne series a glowing review three-and-a-half years ago on this very podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've forgotten, season one revealed that Nadia's fate was tight to a stranger named Alan, who was stuck in his own separate time loop, constantly reliving the day he tried to propose to his girlfriend, only to discover that she was having an affair. Um, Eventually, time began to break down as they tried to figure out what was causing them to loop. Um, As fun as that was, Season 2 has much bigger plans in store than a simple time loop. Mm. It is set four years later in present time, and Russian Doll Season 2 finds Nadia and Alan literally time-travelling into their past (laughs) through an unexpected portal located in the New York City subway. At first, they experience this as a kind of ever-expanding, era-spanning, intergenerational adventure, but they soon discover that it's much more serious if they attempt to change things, particularly much of the season concerns Nadia's quest for for a treasure um, stolen from her Hungarian-Jewish ancestors in World War II by the Nazis. Um, That is... The bare bones plot of season 2 without giving the spoilers away uh, I'll talk much broader about its themes and emotional content later on without giving away the details of it but for now uh, what do you think of season 2 Issa? Uh
1: First and foremost I fucking love this the playlist that they have for season 2 um, yes. I have been yeah. listening to a ton of uh I, they, they actually I think uh I can't remember who did the playlist up but I've been listening to it on Spotify I've also been listening to a ton of the Pachemo Mode since uh, finishing Russian Dolls. Um, mm. What is there to say about Russian Dolls season two? It's it's ambitious, uh, to varying effect. I feel. Um, mm. Did I enjoy it? Yes, I did. Uh, was it satisfying in the end? I'm still not sure, and I've been done with it for a couple of weeks now. Um mm. there are things that are extremely compelling I think the general premise of season two uh is is fascinating right like this entire idea of kind of traveling back. I do enjoy um the the performances of the the additional cast members who have joined in season two uh, Chloe Savini in particular I think does an excellent job as playing a young um her young mother or the younger yes. version of her mother
0: uh, uh she was in season one as well. Yes,
1: yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um. Yeah. So I've I've really kind of enjoyed that. Um. I don't think, and this is something you pointed out to me before I started watch, watching season two, and I mm-hmm. agree, it's not as neat as season one. Uh. Yeah. It's f- very much expanded past the original premise that began in season one, and this version of time traveling, is. Uh, it's a, just a much bigger loop right in 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 essence like the way that they're going about it uh without giving mm. too much away uh, and yeah. with that additional scope with that additional complexity there are moments in time where it feels difficult to have the dots connect as nicely as it is in season one and that can be frustrating yeah. at times uh, but yeah. outside of that it it's it's still fairly feel good I think the pacing struggles in parts but overall is still okay and like I mean we're, we're, we're just here to watch what she gets up to like, really right they banked mm, on yeah. that and it has paid off and uh overall it was a really fun ride
0: yes yes um I, I I agree with you there um yeah I I have some similar thoughts because as as you already mentioned we kind of discussed this uh, outside yeah. um I think Natasha Leon and company made the smart decision to treat Nadia and Ellen as kind of veterans of this kind of supernatural experience yeah. because they don't really stop to question what is happening or how. Yeah. They just accept it. You know, one of Nadia's long-dead relatives tells her there are things in life that cannot be explained. Full stop, that's it. Yeah. Um, And there are things simply better off not being explained in shows like this one, especially when... In other shows or sci-fi fantasy shows where you know you spend kind of half an episode where people sit around explaining powers and magic <laughs> and techno it's frequently the most boring part of such shows or movies. Yes. it's more entertaining just to accept it and enjoy Nadia being Nadia, who is such a comic force of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and as was the case last time, the show is definitely using its science fiction trappings to explore much more grounded emotional issues. It's not interested in the logic of of um time travel as much as the logic of your, of your emotional past or your generational trauma, yeah. um, the time travel functions as a metaphor for, among other things, the mental illness that runs through Nadia's family and her fear that she could have inherited her mother's schizophrenia, plus much of the show's comedy, and it's still very funny, yes. works as a release valve for many of the problems Nadia is reluctant to face about herself. And the new episodes repeat, repeatedly confront her with that darkness in powerful ways, mm-hmm. and The things that Nadia wants to fix about herself require much more than a cross-era treasure hunt. But hey, it's a (laughs) blast to watch her try. Yeah, yeah, I mean, overall, Season 2 is not the near-perfect triumph that Season 1 was. But in reaching further and in trying more, Season 2 ultimately justifies its existence, where once it was hard to see how a continuation might work, now it wouldn't feel the least bit surprising for Nadia to say be abducted by aliens <laughs> or go to parallel dimensions. Yeah. Um, Nadia, the character, is so fun to watch that you stick her in any random metaphysical conundrum and they're banking mm-hmm. that if audience will be in. There are occasional moments that feel like Natasha Leon is kind of just playing the hits. You know, um, <laughs> In the opening scene of the show, Nadia says cockroach when, uh, with a, uh, you know... Uh, or her saying random witty things with her gravelly voice and the phone book thick New York accent and her chain smoking and posture and impulsiveness and curly red hair and sunglasses are such a vibe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're counting on you to just be in for that vibe. Yeah, And I think, truthfully, Russian Doll is that vibe. Yes. <laughs> much more than anything else. And you know, even hits like, uh, like literal hits, like Harry Nilsson's Gotta Get Up eventually finds its way into the soundtrack again. Yes. Uh, But I think Season 2 also proves that it's not a rehash of Season 1. The tone is similar, but the gimmick is very different. And in many ways, it's more audacious in scope and themes. Mm -hmm. And if the end result is a lot messier than the 2018 edition, the level of ambition and uh, the pleasure of going back in Nadia's company makes up for it. Mm -hmm. I would rather have a messy, more audacious attempt at trying something new. Yes. Than what most shows do in just trying to replicate what worked in season one, you know, just doing the same thing over and over and over, over again, Um Most shows, um, and I could tell you there are a lot of shows that we reviewed here that season two, three, four are just trying to recapture the magic of season one. Uh-huh. Those are the shows that are stuck in a time loop, and <laughs> and, and Natasha Leon and Nadia have broken out of a time loop and giving uh, and have tried to give us something different. Is it messier? Yeah, yeah, but I think it's still fun because they don't try the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, so question: How do what do you feel about Alan's um kind of arc right in season two? Because for me, it felt a little a little anemic uh, unfortunately right but mm. given the expanded scope of things and just like how much stuff is going on with Nadia I understand that but at the same time the, a part of me either wanted more from his arc uh, just in terms of like screen time with him really or yeah. I feel like it could have not like in season 1 Alan has, acts as a counterpoint Right, uh, to Nadia, what she's going through is a different perspective. With his own struggles, I you don't yeah. really see that here in season two. And I feel like if we had done away with his uh, all together and focused completely on Nadia, it would have worked mm. to similar effect. Uh, how do you feel about that? Uh,
0: yeah. Um, in response to your question, what arc it did not exist. Um, <laughs> El- Ellen was there because they signed the actor. Yeah, um, and I guess they had to use him. Um, probably the biggest flaw of season two was that Alan was there when he didn't need to be there. Yeah. Um, And that's about it. Yeah, that is probably the biggest flaw in season Mm. two. It would have worked without Alan. In fact, it would have worked better without Alan. I think so too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah so that's why I'm rating this a 7 out of 10 which is way way below the I think the 8 I gave season season 1
1: yeah uh, I'm gonna give it a 7 out of 10 as well I mean like mm-hmm. so many things to enjoy still a strong recommend just like with the ambition and the expanded scope and the uh, inevitable messiness of that like you know just there were just bound to be more things to kind of pick on right um, given how tight season 1 was so 7 out of 10
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Um, next up, we're delving into one of the more genuinely eccentric Netflix enemies in, in recent memory, <laughs> which is um, Termiromi Nove. Uh, the series is actually the third screen adaptation of the popular Termiromi manga series, yeah. literally literally meaning uh, Roman bathhouse in Latin. Um, Termiromi follows Lucius, who is a bathhouse architect under the reign of Emperor Hadrian, and he struggles to come up with innovative ideas to be competitive in a saturated bathhouse market back in ancient Rome. Um, Luckily, Lucius is inexplicably able to gain inspiration through bizarre incidents where he sinks deep underwater only to inexplicably reappear in modern-day Japan where he discovers 21st century bathing innovations such as private toilets, outdoor hot springs, shower hits. Um and he explores modern Japanese bathhouses as well. Um much like Russian doll season two, <laughs> I think Tamir Rome Nove wisely also doesn't bother to explain the mechanics of this time travel. Yeah. It just puts you in it. Yeah. Um what do you think?
1: Oh man. Uh uh, before before kind of embarking, I, was, I I took a quick kind of flip through the manga, right? I was like, "What in the mm. world is going on with it?" Uh, and as much as the manga, the manga is a lot. Uh, the way the manga is kind of drawn and and kind of paced is a lot shorter than what we get um, mm. in in the anime. The anime kind of plays it out a tad more, which is great. Um, I'm I'm totally fine with the fact that you don't explain, uh, you know, um, you know how it exactly works. Uh, I did admittedly get a little tired of him just like having random reasons to fall into deep water. Mm-hmm. Uh, that got tiring after a while, but you just kind of accept it as just kind of like, okay, th- it's a thing, it's a gag, right? Just like lean into it uh, with all yep. of that. Um, the incredible exchanges and um, experiences that Lucius has with modern Japanese people is. Absolutely a joy to watch. The exchanges Mm. are funny. There is so much miscommunication uh, that transpires just from, like... Not not just a language level, but, like, a whole, like, cultural and generational level as well. uh, That is fascinating to kind of see play out, right? Like, it's hard sometimes. And I think a lot of the time when we have isekai um, anime, right? And as tropey as all of those get, a lot of the time, like, the protagonist... Tend to adapt to whatever new world they find themselves in very very quickly, but because mm. Lucius goes to and fro so often, and his time in Japan is much much shorter, obviously than than the time that he spends in 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 Rome. Um, yes, that continues to be uh, his misunderstanding of his ability to time travel, uh, and and I I guess you know be in a completely different space is uh, fascinating to kind of like track, right? Like, as it goes along through the entire season, right? Like, he has Mm. uh, a begrudging respect for the technology and culture surrounding Japanese buffs um, and it grows on him instead of something that he immediately just, like, attaches himself to. Uh, He's still extremely proud as a Roman citizen uh, and continues Mm. to carry himself that way, which leads to both some very interesting kind of, like, Philosophical quandaries as well as incredible hijinks at the same time, which is incredibly mm. fun to watch. Um, for those of you who are keen on checking this out, uh, fair warning there it will be a lot of uh, uh, tasteful uh, Greek statuesque nudity, a lot, sure. Uh, like in every episode, sure. like 80% of the episode is going to be something like that. Lucius is mostly unclothed for the majority of this anime. Uh, and it's mm. not something that's a turn-off uh, and it's very, very apt for what uh, the anime actually is. Uh, but just, yeah. just a fair warning if it, that's not your cup of tea.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree with all that you said. Um, I think, yeah, uh, this narrow scope that Temirome is, right? Yeah. Like, this episodic running gag is is meant to be really fun um, as, you know, we not only see why bathing culture is so important both to ancient Rome and modern Japan, yeah. But like you said, like how Lucius, who is a proud Roman, slowly begins to respect the culture and manners and ingenuity of the Japanese people, Mm -hmm. Um, it is fascinating not just as a treatise about bathhouse engineering, yeah, but also how to be a good tourist. Yes, I think. Yes, Um, this is reinforced with the fact that manga of the Mari Yamazaki herself provides increasingly convincing arguments for why Japanese bathhouse tours are a great time. Mm. Um, In fact, the best part of each episode is arguably (laughs) the documentary travelogue episodes that happen at the end of each episode. The mini-epilogues at the end of each episode, as we follow uh, Mari Yamazaki touring various j- bathhouses houses in Japan yeah. and learning about the various techniques and local customs employed in different spas and hot springs. Yeah. Um it's, it's a show of been a show that I really enjoyed as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: me too, me too. I, I um it is an increasingly it's not an increasingly popular, like uh, that kind of format has existed for quite a while. Uh, the last show that I watched that had a similar kind of theme to that was uh not a restaurant to another world, but some kind of isekai restaurant trope as well, uh, which I really mm. kind of enjoyed. Uh, I do enjoy the fact that, like, we get to see the source of the author's inspiration as she does this um, tour of like various um, uh, meccas, I guess, of, uh, of Japanese bath culture uh, and yeah, how yeah, that yeah. feeds directly into her stories with Lucius. Uh, Those are interesting and a peek into a process that is usually not available to us as anime watchers because we are several times removed um, from the manga itself and and the process of creation of the story there. Um, Mm, So I I fully enjoy those things. Um, Yeah, I really, really love uh, this anime. I did go and check out the older ones. Uh, They are not great. uh, And they don't, Seem, I mean, they're fairly old and they don't seem to be able to capture just the absurdity of the premise of the story in the same way that this one, uh, this new one has. Um, So, you know, uh, uh, give it a shot. It's on Netflix uh, for most of us. uh, And I'm going to give it a solid like 7 out of 10. I really, really enjoyed this.
0: I agree. Yeah, uh, 7 out of 10 for me as well. Um, next up it's part 2 of Quick Hits, where, again, I talk about some of the movies, mostly movies this time, that Michael has haven't seen. Mm. Um, there are a lot of blockbusters out in cinema right now, now that COVID restrictions have been um, you know, lightened. Uh, first up, I'm going to talk about is Fantastic Beasts 3, subtitle The Secrets of Dumbledore. Um, if you thought Fantastic Beasts was the hobbit of the Harry Potter cinematic franchise, well, the f- third entry proves <laughs> that it is Far, far worse. Uh. Um, even worse than than a novella being stretched into nine hours. Uh, which is bad in itself. Yeah. Fantastic Beasts is a franchise that is at the mercy of slapdash planning, cobbled together not even from a book or a story, but from various pieces of encyclopedia material from the Wizarding World. Um, this third outing entitled The Secrets of Dumbledore falls precisely into the same traps as his predecessors, offering up an unwieldy mash of adult themes and childish whimsy that's made even more inscrutable by... Too many subplots, too many characters, and a tone that veers wildly Of course at every possible turn. A horrendous mess. It is a two-hour ten. Ooh. Next up, I'm going to be talking about the sequel to Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. The sequel follows Sonic as he settles in green hills. Sonic is eager to prove that he has what it takes to be a true hero. His test comes... When Dr. Robotnik returns, this time with a new partner, Knuckles, mm. in search for an emerald that has the power to destroy civilization. So Sonic teams up with his own sidekick, Tails, and they together embark on a globetrotting tro- journey to find the emerald before it falls into the wrong hands. From a technical standpoint, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is fairly impressive in merging its live action and animation, mm-hmm. a reminder of the technological advancements since the days of Who frame Roger Rabbit. Uh... Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is filled with frantic action that will appeal to family audiences seeking a distraction. Yeah. However, it's nothing more than a generic popcorn fodder that's a little too generic, a little too forgettable, <laughs> and a little too overlong. Um, it all sort of comes together in the end, though, um, but there's no earthly reason this kind of substanceless adventure should take two hours. Um. Probably be better served as a 90-minute feature. It's a 5 out of 10 for me. Mm. Uh, Next up, I'm going to talk about a new show out now on Showtime. It's called The Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, If it sounds familiar, it's because The Man Who Fell to Earth was originally a 1963 sci-fi novel by Walter Travis. And he has since been adapted twice before with the 1976 Nicholas Rueck feature film, film starring David Bowie. Um, the most famous adaptation, and then there's a TV movie in 1987. Um, so it's been about 30, 40 years. So the time seems about right for a reboot mm-hmm. that retains the premise of the basic framework of the source material, but shifts the focus to a new character okay. and takes a decidedly lighter and sometimes comedic approach to the storyline. Um, this in particular is a reboot of the Nicholas Roeg film, that version.
1: Oh, right, yes, right. You know, okay, okay, okay.
0: But, you know, because of because of that, it's unfortunately that you have to compare it to that version now, because this is a reboot <laughs> of that version. But, you know, who could possibly be better than David Bowie? Yeah. You know? like, David Bowie's remarkable alien quality, who can replicate that? Yeah. You know? um, unfortunately, David Bowie is no longer alive, so what you gonna do? La? Uh <sighs> well. The premise is similar to the source material. This time, a new alien, played by Chitobo Aj- Ajayofor, who does a good job here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's no boy, but he does a great job. He crashes into Earth in New Mexico, stumbling his way to a civilization nearby. Um, he mimics those who see those he sees and hears and calls himself Faraday. Um, so he comes to Earth with orders to contact a single mother named Justine Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason is because he believes that... Uh, that this mother is the key not only to saving his planet but to saving Earth in the process, you know. Mm-hmm. Um how does Faraday know this? That's because of Thomas Jerome Newton. Um fans of the original are probably pausing here because yes Jerome, um, Jerome Newton is David Bowie's character in the film. Mm. So this is not a reboot. It is a sequel oh. to the Man Who Fell to Earth movie. Um, so it's it's a sequel slash reboot. Um, in the four episodes I've seen, the Man Who Fell to Earth is at least two or three somewhat different shows. There's a kind of tonal whiplash here that can be perplexing. Okay, uh, But thus far, a great performance by Chitawa 4 holds the series together in ways that can remain entertaining and it, it feels it's full of potential. Overall, it's solidly made um, it's issue-oriented. It's kind of a sci-fi road trip about heavy topics like immigration. Um, it's not a mind-blowing type of show, but it's not at all a waste of time. So it's a 7 out of 10. Next up, we're going to be talking about Shining Girls, which stars Elizabeth Moss, mm. um, which is why I watched it. I watched it because it's Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. Um, knowing it's Elizabeth Moss, you may be wondering, who is menacing Elizabeth Moss this time? <laughs> uh, The the actor's characters have withstood, um, as we've talked about, uh, 1960s uh, corporate sexism, um, a theofascist patriarchy, Mm -hmm. um, even a freaking invisible abusive ex. Mm -hmm. Um, Moss's latest project aims to leave those sufferings in the dust. Uh, This eight-part Apple TV show, she plays Kirby Masrachi, who is an assault survivor Mm -hmm. who teams with a reporter to hunt down a serial killer. That's because the ammo of the serial killer resembles the circumstances of her own attack years ago, the attack that she survived. Yeah. So she thinks that she was attacked by this serial killer. It plays exactly like Zodiac. Okay. Up until the point that you realize the serial killer is a time traveler.
1: Huh? Okay. And that he's
0: he's already <laughs> killed her in the future. Um, the conceit layers different genres like newspaper procedural sci-fi and trauma drama with clues scattered and juggled to keep us guessing over six and a half hours the thing is the show is pretty solid pretty pretty solid Elizabeth Moss is great as always but in the end I can't help but feel that you'd be better off watching Zodiac okay or watching Predestination instead because that, uh, those are the two movies that this show is particularly inspired by. Right. Um, it's a 7 out of 10, but it will play better if you've never seen Zodiac or Predestination and think this is very novel. I see. Okay. Uh, and Yeah, that was Quick Hits too. That was my rundown of all the shows. Next up, um, let's talk about uh, Morbius, the latest uh, movie coming out of S- Sony's corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or oh, should I say Marvel Cinematic Multiverse? Yes. Um, we caught Morbius about a month ago, about a few weeks ago, actually. Yeah. Um what do you think of Morbius Morbius? Okay,
1: it is it is not the worst movie Sony has put out, right? True, uh, yeah. and I, I'm just gonna say that out loud just because like it it seems that there are a ton of memes going uh on about like, oh, you know, it's the worst thing they ever made. It's not, right? Like it's okay. It's very bad. It's, it's very bad. Yeah, it's 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 okay. It's like it's fine, right? Like it is everything that you thought it would possibly be. And if you're going this with the correct expectations, you're gonna get exactly that, right? Uh Gerald mm. Leto yet again is insufferable. Um, in yet again another insufferable role. Uh but Matt mm-hmm. Smith, I really kind of enjoyed uh Milo slash uh Lucien's character. Uh it's mm. it's so oddly apt um, mm. casting choice and uh, yep. as as I was saying uh, to his uh, as we came out of the movie I was like it's so strange that Matt Smith is coming here and he's playing like a vampire and you know it's kind of like um, fairly modern New York that we're going through but he's he dresses exactly like Doctor Who his Doctor Who character uh, sure, which, is, yeah, yeah. which is kind of amazing and so strange at the same time uh, but you know Uh, I personally am a much bigger fan of the Mobius that we got uh, in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. The one with the strange Mm. suckers on the palms of his hand. Uh, In his very kind of like short stint within that franchise, uh, he had a Mm. much more fascinating arc, much more interesting origin story that is not so like kind of -of run-of-the-mill sci-fi vampire. Uh, and his relationships in that were with both Peter and with uh with uh Blade and with uh Craven was far, far more interesting than anything we got here. So I don't wanna mm. spend too much time on Mobius, but like what do you what do you uh what's what's your take?
0: Um Ditto <laughs>
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna give it like a five out of ten. I think like it's a movie that you can watch if you just wanna like round out your general knowledge of what Sony is trying to do. Um uh, but sure, there's yeah. yeah, there's nothing yeah. outstanding about this movie at all.
0: I agree, I agree. Um next up you've seen Ultraman season two as well, right? The anime version of Ultraman. Yes.
1: So I've caught three episodes, which is exactly half. Of the season uh mm. for that. Uh it has been on a very, very long hiatus, and after seeing three episodes, I kind of understand why. Uh it is completely computer generated, right? And so was the first season. Uh in uh, yeah. that amount of time, technology has definitely improved. Like we've gotten an entirely new generation of graphics cards, uh, you know, and all of that. And that certainly does show in the quality uh in mm. general, but yet again mm. we come back to this thing that that for both hits and i we're not big fans of cell shading animation right like for me if you are going to go full-on cg then embrace that medium and stop pretending it's anime uh mm. so much so that most of the action sequences and I'll, I'll get into the story and plot of which there's very little um right that do not involve any cell shaded characters so that means when he's in his suit right Looks great. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the monster designs this time round don't seem as novel or interesting as what we got the last time around. Uh, this time right. round, we follow... There's some complications. There's a new mystery, a new kind of like alien-related uh, conspiracy and crime that needs to be solved. Uh, There's an... Obviously, you have to pop in a new Ultraman because, you know, uh, everybody just wants to collect more Ultraman. Uh, clearly, uh, but outside of that, there's actually very little to kind of go on. It feels very much like a continuation of the last one, which we didn't rate that highly anyway. Uh, But if you're Mm. a huge, huge Ultraman fan, like, there is still a great deal of kind of, like, nostalgia. Uh, There's less emphasis on kind of the family drama that we got in Season 1, which I thought was maybe the most compelling part about it. Um, Mm. But you don't really get that in Season 2, it feels a lot more bland because of that, which is kind of unfortunate. Uh, And just a lot of, like, you know, sci-fi hoobla that they banter and throw around that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever um yep. it's six episodes it's like 20 minutes each it's a really short watch but i couldn't even get through half of it so take that for what you will i'm giving this a four out of ten
0: okay cool um that essentially wraps it up for the main episode of journey quality 53 i'm gonna wrap it up with a pull list as i usually do where i recommend a book or a comic or some sort of literature that uh my co-host or you may not have read um this one I'm willing to bet there's a decent chance you've read this. I'm yeah. um, be talking about Never Let Me Go, which was initially a film I saw in 2010, mm-hmm. which I thought was good, but largely unspecial. Um, I have heard that the book by Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro is a straight-up Old history, character-driven sci-fi masterpiece, yep. much in the vein of a Margaret Edward type of literature. Mm. Um, well, I finally read the novel, and I just got to say, the movie, I think, does the novel no justice. <laughs> uh, the movie was good, but it was no masterpiece <laughs> like the novel is. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting hybrid of, I would say, <laughs> a Blade Runner crossed with normal people. Um, we. <laughs> We follow a narrator named Kathy, who is looking back on her school days at a superficially idyllic establishment called Helisham. Yeah. Um, and and Helsham is, uh, it exists to raise clone children who have been brought into the world for the sole purpose of providing organs to other normal people, uncloned people. Mm-hmm. Um. They don't have parents. They can't have children. And once they graduate, they go through a period of being carers to others of their kind who are already being deprived of their organs. Uh, Then, they undergo up to four donations themselves, quote-unquote donations, until they complete, aka die. Um, The whole enterprise, like most human enterprises of dubious morality, is wrapped in euphemism and shadow. The the outer world to these children um, exists because it's, you know, uh, like, the world just wants these kids to exist because they're greedy, right? Greedy for the benefits that they can confer. But... It doesn't want to look head-on at what is happening. Mm. We we assume that it's we we assume, but it's never stated that whatever objections might have been raised to such a scheme have already been overcome. Yeah. By now, the rules are in place and the situation is taken taken for granted. And you might think, how could people do this to other people? Um. We live in a world where. You know, slavery was a thing I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it was once a thing and it wasn't thought of as a bad thing uh, and, and by the beneficiaries and victims alike it was thought of as the th- status quo it was just normal it was so normalized that you didn't think twice about it that's what the world of cloning is like this it's just normalized you know? all, but all of that the politics of it is background though Ishiguro isn't interested in the practicalities of cloning and organ donation, nor is it a novel about future horrors. Mm -hmm. It's set in the past. It's set in an alternate version of 1990s England that's exactly like it was, except with human cloning. Mm. And Kathy has nothing to say. Our main character has nothing to say about the unfairness of her fate because she's not been raised to think that way. Yeah. She's not a radical. She's not a rebel. She's like all of us who have come to accept the limitations society imposes on us. And it's just normal. It's normal to her. Indeed, she considers herself lucky to have grown up in a superior establishment like Hillsham, rather than the standard organ farm. Mm-hmm. Like most people, she's interested in personal relationships. In her case, the connection between her best friend who is a bossy and manipulative person called Ruth and the boy she loves named Tommy so it follows them over a couple of decades of interaction um Kathy and Tommy gain minor clues about their future and deal with Ruth's manipulations but avoid direct confrontations even when openly faced with destructive lies yeah this opens up the path to a life full of unexpressed thoughts and painful misunderstandings. This book is very good at crafting the interior lives of these characters and it's so uncannily observant and emotionally truthful about how kids think and interact. It's just the setting is sci-fi. The character motivations are not. Sometimes you let yourself think that you're reading a Sally Rooney novel or an Elena Ferrante novel. Mm -hmm. I, I, I... Compare this a lot to Normal People or My Brilliant Friend because it's very similar in tone and style. It all feels so embarrassingly familiar and honest and compelling to anyone who's ever kept a teenage diary. Um, it's a bit Pen15 pen too, to be honest. Yeah. You know. And and most people will complain that the book focuses too much on the personal lives of these characters um, and offers very little detail about the cloning system or the world at large, there's no rebellion. Mm-hmm. Heck, the fake the, the kids don't even think they're oppressed. But in my opinion, it's a deep dive into them as people that makes the book so heartbreaking and intimate. These clones are not some abstract allegory for real-world problems, mm-hmm. and they are not YA heroes. They feel like real people with real lives, and that's the point. Mm-hmm. The point is that every forgotten minority are real people with real lives who think and feel in exactly the same way as we all do. With the same friendship and relationship problems and all that jazz, you know. Um, each of us knows injustice exists in our world, but none of us think seriously about it. Or none of us think about overturning the the world order. Do you or I think about that sometimes, but we don't actually <laughs> consider it a practicality. We've bought into the rules of our world and so have they. In in one sense, never let me go is a mystery novel with the question of the character's purpose, and future hanging constantly in the air. But mm-hmm. the clues are all in place, and the mystery is easy to unravel. The book isn't meant as a thriller with a big, high-impact reveal. It's far more like one of Margaret Edwards' novels, with a gentle twist and a mildly fantastical bent, giving extra shape to what's more properly a subtle, moving story about people and their emotions and how they express them, and why they don't, and all that gets lost as a result. It's a thoughtful, crafty, and finally very disquieting look at the effects of dehumanization on any group that it's subject to. Mm-hmm. And in Ishiguro's subtle hands, these effects are far from obvious. There's no them bad, as good preaching. Rather, there's the creeping, uncertain feeling that emerges as the expectations of characters diminish and their ability to think outside the box decreases. Mm-hmm the reader reaches the end of the book wondering exactly where the walls of his or her own invisible box begins and ends. And yeah, that's what I took from the novel. It's brilliant. It's not at all what the movie is. I would highly recommend it. I mean it won a book a prize it's written by a Nobel laureate so I'm I my praise means little compared to all of that and I'm assuming if you're a sci-fi fan you've probably read this soft sci-fi novel at least once you know. but I haven't and I enjoyed it when I read it back in February Um, have you seen the movie or read the novel? I uh, have I
1: seen the movie I yep. don't know. I have not read the novel it's one of the Ishiguro novels that I have not uh, finished hmm. yeah Uh, It is definitely... I mean, I put it on my list as soon as I I saw you put it up on pull list. I was like, oh, yes. That's actually... I haven't done that yet. So, it's good to know that it is better than the movie, which I was okay with all those years ago. Mm. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely concur that it it will definitely be probably better than what we got on screen.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's it for this episode of John Equality 53. We'll be back next month for a couple of episodes to so behold uh, one with Aisa and one with uh, Hardy as well. Um, firstly, on hope 48, we look forward to boxing movies. Mm. That's what me and Hadi are going to be talking about. <laughs> we're talking about our favorite boxing films, yeah. Um, including Raging Bull, Million Dollar Baby, Rocky and Creed, uh, which were both from the same franchise. Uh, and then later on on hope 49, we'll be interviewing the creator of another podcast, a, a narrative audio historical drama called The Mascenario and the Parlor One. Mm-hmm. He was the creator, writer, star, producer all around everything yeah. to that to that uh narrative podcast uh he is called Leon Sutton, and we have um a close to hour-long interview with him um and then subsequently we'll also be talking about some of our other favorite narrative podcasts or, or audio dramas that have come out in recent times mm. um isa has picked welcome to nightville and i have picked my dad wrote a porno and next month for and equality probably the biggest of the year so far yeah um because MCU will be wrapping two big things, one a TV show, one a movie. We'll be talking about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness Mm. alongside Moon Knight, which has its finale next week. Myself and Hardy will be delving into Undone Season 2, which is as good as Undone Season 1. Hardy will talk about Halo because he is... uh, I don't know, he likes suffering. (laughs) Um, uh, Plus, I will talk about Stranger Things Season 4, which is the final season of Stranger Things, Love, Death and Robots Season 3, as well as a new horror movie called X, which A24 is releasing. Um, Hardy will also be reviewing Star Trek Picard because, again, like I said, he enjoys suffering. And I'll be introducing (laughs) um, um, a new segment for genre equality called Quick Hits Classics, uh, which is um, a segment where I don't have a book or piece of literature to review. And I will be revisiting... uh, um, a sci-fi fantasy or horror title that we've never talked about on the show before. Yeah. Um so Quick hits Classics for next month will be um uh a certified cult classic oh, yeah. uh, in a in a horror in a horror realm by Roman Polanski. It's called Rosemary's Baby. Uh-huh. Uh it's a movie I consider to be my personal favorite horror movie uh of that oh, of that type of horror movie, yeah. you know, the uh the satanic cult. You know, it's a certain genre. I don't know what to call that genre, but <laughs> i I I believe it's this is the the best of that of, of all the stories. Um it's come to influence a lot of Ari Esther and Robert Eggers' work in recent years, you know. Um there would be no A24 without Rosemary's baby, and I'll yep. I'll I'll get into that next month. Um, what are you what are you most looking forward to to covering? Uh
1: I, I guess Doctor Strange and Moon Knight would definitely be the big ones uh mm. going through Moon Knight I'm enjoying it so far. Uh, I'll, yep. I'll keep whatever discussion we have for the episode itself, Uh, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, I am curious about Love, Death and Robots, Uh, Season 3. Um, yep. You know, just to see where they go with it, right? Because, like, as we've seen so far, there's always some that really, really stand out. Season 2, on the whole, wasn't as captivating as Season 1. So, I'm curious. I'm just curious to see. Like, every mm. time we get, like, a year or two-year gap between seasons... There's a huge jump in the quality of the animation and I'm always, always interested to see how people make use of tech to, you know, just kind of like create new worlds. So um, I'm super excited about that as well.
0: I agree, I agree. Uh, Well, that's it for this episode of uh, Genre Quality. Join us next month and our three new episodes will be out then. Till then, this has been there I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.